0: Colossians chapter 3, we do, however, this week, continue our study. Uh, This study began, I don't know, about five weeks ago now, and we started speaking about the devil's dirty delights, the socially acceptable sins we called them, those sins that were not fornication, and and the ones that were so public and uh, visible to everyone, but the ones that were a little bit more inward, and those sins, and we'll read them, but they included sins like anger and wrath, and malice, and lying to one another. Did you know a lie is still a lie, even if you never get caught? And uh, that that was some of the acceptable sins that uh, the Bible talked about. The Bible doesn't think they're acceptable, but we as a society and Christian culture have made them somewhat more uh, acceptable. Well, then we transitioned from the devil's dirty delights, and then we said that The Savior offers us some very sweet substitutes. We are to take off those dirty delights and put on the Savior's sweet substitutes. And we continue with that this week, although the ones that we spoke about last week directly apply to the preceding dirty delights. And we'll read it here in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 8. Maybe you'll remember some of what we talked about. We'll start in verse number 7. In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither... Uh, Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as we took off the old garments, now we are to put on, therefore, these garments, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, number one, bowels of mercy, an intense and deep yearning of love and consideration for our fellow man kindness you know there is no substitute for just being kind and it's such a shame when i meet somebody who's not a religious person but they're kinder than most religious people i've ever met it's a shame for two reasons because that person has the traits that i like to see in christians and yet they're on their way to hell and it's a shame that christians know the savior and we could be rougher than some of those people that have just learned hey it's nice to be nice and there's no substitute for kindness, humbleness of mind. And we spoke about that last week, and it is directly contrary to anger. Anger is an attitude just like humbleness or humility is an attitude. It's something that we constantly live in, constantly abide in. We talked about how Humbleness of mind, well, as the Bible says here, it is in your mind, it originates in your mind. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, And that passage is specifically talking about his humility, even even though he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and humbled himself even to death, even unto the death of the cross. So we understand humility originates in our mind, and humility is not destroying who you are in your mind. You have to understand God created you exactly how he wanted you. God never makes a mistake. And boy, I I remember vividly thinking in my teenage years, man, I wish I didn't have so many freckles. Man, I wish I was buffer like the rest of the guys. I really don't want to work out to get that. But man, I wish God would just bless me in that way. But I remember thinking those things, and maybe you shared in those thoughts of insecurity when you were much younger. and, And as you grow older, you're like, well, the belly's coming no matter what. I just can't avoid it, you know, and... And maybe if you see that my hairline did not used to recede as far back as it does now, and and I'm starting to hate the lights for other reasons other than just I can't see y'all in the eyes. But uh, uh, maybe you've shared those thoughts of insecurity, but God never makes a mistake. And humility is not saying, well, I'm just nobody and I could never be used for anything. No, God uses very small people to accomplish very large tasks in the Bible. Humility is accurately understanding who you are in light of God's will for your life. And that was what we spoke on last week. It's the exact opposite of anger. It's, a, it's an attitude of humility. And the Bible goes on to say meekness. Now meekness is the counterpart or the contrary attitude or action to wrath. See, wrath was something that boiled from anger but boiled over and spilled onto those around us. Sometimes we get wrathful when something doesn't go our way. We started angry, but wrath boils over. Well, humility is the contrary uh, part to uh, anger, but wrath and, uh, and meekness are uh, con- antonyms, I guess, is the right word there. They're, they're the exact opposite. Because meekness is having the ability to lash out and act out, but having the control not to. We continue to speak on this. Uh, the Bible goes on saying, verse number twelve, and long suffering. And long suffering is when we, despite much uh, uh, disturbance and much uh, uh, provocation, we are able to uh, somewhat deal with those issues because of the humility and the meekness that we display. Now, you ought not get get angry and stay angry and then boil over into wrath just because somebody keeps doing it over and over. No, we ought to have a humble mind, and we ought to be a meek person and suffer long so that we can be the Christian that God wants us to be. We put on these things. Now, in saying all of that, did you know you can be the best Christian in the world And people still won't necessarily all love you. Did you know that you could be so humble that it oozes out of every word that you say? Did you know that you could be as meek as a church mouse? Which I don't really know how that statement really works out because I've never met a mouse that was meek. They're all really nasty and their eyes bulge out. So they're they're gross. But you could be humble to the hilt. You could be meek, oh, so magnificently. And you could make sure that you were long-suffering with everybody around you. And you know what somebody would probably say to you? Oh, they're a goody two-shoes. You know, that's just an act. A facade. In the inside, I know what they're really thinking. When on the inside, no, you are... In humility, and you have a humbleness of mind, and you're you're trying to be meek. Several times this week, I found myself trying to live out the words that I'm preaching to y'all as meekness. Sometimes I wanted to say words, and I tried choking them back, and did not always succeed. So I am by no means an expert. So, but uh, you could be the greatest Christian in the world and still deal with people that don't love you. Amen. Jesus did. And Jesus is the greatest Christian that's ever lived. He did no wrong. He never did anything offensively or aggressively. I even recall some of the times that the uh, uh, Pharisees approached Jesus to start a fight, to start some verbal dispute, and yet the one thing they always had to say about Jesus, his words are just so gracious. They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. That's what the Bible says about Jesus. You could be the greatest Christian to have ever lived and still encounter people who do not get along with you. So as we transition to what we study tonight, this is how we deal with those things in our life when people don't always agree with us. And even though you have the best intentions and even though you might be trying to do everything right and you may be holding back all your words and you may be trying to live in humility and meekness and and you're suffering long because you're having trouble putting up with them but you're trying to ask God for help, they still may do something that hurts you or offends you or makes you so angry you can spit and the grass won't grow for three weeks where you spit. That can still happen. So how do you deal with it? And this is how this evening we'll study in verse number 13. 13. The Bible says, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Verse 13, we find the first thing that we are supposed to do is forbearing one another. You know, forbearance in the Bible almost exclusively speaks of God. And specifically, it speaks of God in our salvation. And really, if you were to imagine the timeline of your life, there's a period of time when you as a person are born into sin. We would all agree with that. David said that. Uh, uh, The Bible over and over again says all men are sinners. And, And so from the time that you were born to the time you got saved... You were what the Bible labels and terms as an enemy of God. A child of wrath, seeking to fulfill your own lusts with no thought of your Creator, with no thought of God. You were as selfish as they come. And on this timeline of your life, there was a time when God forbeard with you that he did not justly avenge you. Right? He is righteous. And God cannot live in the presence of sin. And so as God looks down and sees you seeking your own will, seeking your own pleasure, seeking the lust of your flesh, he looks down and God would have been well within his rights to strike you down. And a lot of people talk about a bolt of lightning hitting you. God doesn't want to shake up heaven to kill you. you just send a gnat up your nose and do it, okay? So, uh, during that timeline of your life, we would all have to understand God was very uh, uh, forbearing with us. Forbearing, as it's defined, is to hold back or delay punishment. Or to forgive a debt or to postpone the collection of a debt. So God justly could have approached us and said, Today I'll require your life for you. You're living in sin. You're not seeking me. But God waited and, 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 and forbeared with us that we might come to know His Son, Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that once you're saved, God no longer sees your sin. Amen. It's just in the Bible. And I don't care what false doctrines, I don't care what denominations want to make you think that God looks at you and you have to beg Him for forgiveness every time you sin. No, God forgave your sin, Uh, justified means past sin, present sin, and future sin. You cannot live in sin, uh, or, or God cannot see your sin, even that you commit. The reason that we go to God and ask Him for forgiveness of our sins after salvation is to restore the intimate fellowship, right? The relationship is not broken, but we, like the prodigal son said, I'm taking my money, and uh, went our own way. And what we do when we come back to Jesus is we say, Lord, forgive me. You were forgiven long before you ever committed the sin. But what you're doing is you're making the long walk back down Dad's driveway and saying, Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. That is the process of forgiveness in a Christian's life. God was so gracious to us, however, that during the time before we knew Jesus... He didn't strike us down. He didn't smite us. We deserved it. Or at least, maybe you were a better sinner than I was, but I deserved it. And yet he was so forbearing with me. And tonight what he asks of us is that we would be the same with other people. Even if you live a perfect Christian's life, some people will occasionally offend you. What do you do? You were reasonably offended. And they actually did something to make you mad, to make you upset, to make you think that they don't like you. What do you do? Well, you postpone the execution of your judgment on that person. Not that they don't deserve judgment. Not that they don't deserve you to go up, well, I cannot believe you would say that. Not that they don't deserve that. But what forbearance is, is delaying it so that you may give them some time to either, one, realize what they've done, or maybe come to you and say, hey, look, I was in the wrong. Forbearance is allowing them to uh, have some time to develop and grow as a Christian. One of the most poignant stories in the Bible of this testimony is when Jacob, known as the deceiver tricks Esau out of his birthright. Sitting around the campfire there, Esau approaches Jacob. He says, oh, Jacob, I'm so hungry. Can you help me out? He said, can you help a brother out? That's what he said, because they were brothers. And uh, 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 he comes to Jacob and says, Jacob, I'm so hungry. Can you feed me? And Jacob says, yeah, for a price. And Esau says, man, I'm, I'm so hungry. I'm about to die here. And Jacob says, give me your birthright. And Esau says, Well, if I'm dead, a birthright will do me no good. So he he trades with Jacob. And the Bible says, from that day on, and this to me speaks to Esau's maturity. He despised his birthright and not Jacob. And somebody steals something from me, and let's be very honest, Jacob stole that thing. And I think it's amazing that Esau did not just automatically say, I can't stand you, brother. You tricked me. You don't even love me enough to just give me a bowl of porridge. Lentils, if we want to be politically correct and biblically correct. But you don't know what lentils are, and neither do I. And I remember the story where there was some porridge served. So that's what we're going to call it. And so I think it's amazing that Esau did not despise Jacob, but he despised his birthright. That's uh, Genesis chapter 25. Guess what? Genesis chapter 27, Jacob's up to the same old tricks. It just so happens that Isaac is about to die, and uh, Isaac needs to pass the blessing to the oldest son, and his name is what? Not Jacob. It's Esau. And Esau says, uh, Isaac says to Esau, Oh, Esau, I need you to go make me some of your venison. I need you to go get me a backstrap, son. That's what he says. But I'm changing the language a little bit. But he says, Go get me a backstrap. Wrap it in bacon and grill it for very... Don't cook it over medium rare. Why are you scared of what them animals eat? All they eat is grass and berries and corn. What are you scared them for? I, we cook a cow medium rare and they've been sucking on steroids. So anyway, don't overcook, the, don't overcook the venison, son. So Esau says, yes, dad, I'll do this. This is your dying wish. This is your last supper. And so he goes out and he's going he's gonna to kill a the deer there and bring it back uh, 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 for Isaac. And during that time, Jacob and his mother conspire this plan to steal not only the birthright, which is already Jacob's, but now to steal the blessing that's passed down through Isaac. While Esau's out, they take the garment. We all know the story, but they take that sheep's wool there, and he comes into Isaac, and Isaac is not easy to trick. Isaac can't see all that well, and he looks at Jacob there, covered in the sheep's wool, and he says, son, let me fill you. And he feels him, and he sees that he's really hairy like Esau, and says, Well, you, you, you feel like Esau, but you sound like Jacob. And Jacob says, I like, oh, don't worry about it. And they made him just a normal lamb, just, just went out into the pasture and got what was convenient. And did you know anytime you have to be deceptive to gain something, it's usually out of convenience for you? Sometimes the best way is the hardest way, because it makes you appreciate what you have. Amen. I like when parents don't always hand kids their yeah. things. Uh, this week I sat across the table from a parent in our church and he was explaining to me, I don't want my son to just feel entitled that he can have whatever he wants. Not like that. Amen. But Jacob was taking the easy way out. Well, Esau returns and, and unfortunately Isaac did give the blessing to Jacob there. And Esau returns. What is up? I mean, I did what you asked me, Dad. and Now I get back and you've already given your blessing away. And basically, and I think this shows spiritual maturity. Instead of getting mad at Jacob again, he says, Dad, can you just, do you have anything for me? Even if it's not what you just gave Jacob, can can you bless me a little bit? Like, is there any way? And Isaac says, unfortunately, I can't. And then the Bible says, Esau hated Jacob. And to be honest with you, I don't blame him. Is there a person in the room that would say tonight by a lifted hand, yeah, I don't think he has much reason to hate him. No, Jacob stole his birthright and his blessing, and as the eldest son, those are the two privileges of being the oldest son. Other than that, it's just a bunch of babysitting duties. right? So things are not great between Jacob and Esau. Fast forward many, many years, in much spiritual growth, Jacob returns home. He's fought many battles, he's faced a lot of things God's worked in his life. And he knows he's going to have to encounter Esau. So what happens? Well, Jacob devises a plan to send some fellas forward with, basically, we'll call it a peace offering. And he says, guys, I need you to go and tell him that this is for me and that I'm on my way. Well, the guys return and they say, Jacob, we did what you asked, but unfortunately, Esau is headed this way with 400 men. I know all about greeting parties and welcoming committees, but in Jacob's perspective, he's not thinking they're coming with like kazoos and party hats, okay? Jacob becomes very concerned. He even prays to the Lord that he would spare his family from. It goes so far that Jacob systematically lines up his family in favorites. He, he puts, uh, he has all of these presents and gifts and he puts one herd But up there, puts another herd of animals here, another herd of animals here, another herd of animals here, and then he breaks up his family into twos, and he puts his favorites in the back, and he puts all of his least favorite, the handmaidens up front. This is, I'm not, this is the Bible here saying this, and as Esau comes, the idea is, Esau approaches the first herd, and he's supposed to say, he's given this to me? Ha, yeah, like that's going to do anything." thing. He approaches the next herd, and he says, wow, that's, that's a lot better, but that doesn't forgive all what he's done. He goes to the next herd, and he's supposed to, by the time that he comes to Jacob, his wrath is to be appeased. He finally gets to Jacob, and he greets him. He doesn't come with closed fist; he comes with open arms. And Jacob says, yo, what's up? And Now, that's not a literal translation. That's not in the Hebrew. I'm making all this up as we go, but I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But basically, Esau goes, what did you mean by all of these offerings? And and Jacob says, man, I was afraid you'd be angry at me. He says, man, a lot of times passed, and the Lord has blessed me. I don't need all of what you're giving me. Do you notice the spiritual maturity there? Even when Esau had the opportunity and even the right to attack Jacob and to take out vengeance. I mean, before he didn't have an army of 400. Now he does. He has every right and the means to justify what he did all back then. And he doesn't. He forbears. And that's what God asks you to do. How many people in Burleson uh, travel through Burleson? How many of y'all really appreciate the safety and the convenience that the traffic traffic light cameras have provided Burleson? I'm really excited about the change that has taken place. I think, you know, it's all been for the positive. Uh, I've, I've seen many wrecks avoided because of them, and I'm so thankful that they put them in. Uh, but one thing that is not my favorite about them is the fact that there is no mercy on probably the grayest area of driving that you have ever when you step behind the wheel. Think about it. Every light seems to be different. You have green, you have yellow, and maybe it's rated for speed zone. I'm not quite sure. But conditions change. I mean, what if the road's wet? What if you're pulling a trailer? When you could normally have time to stop, not all the time does that yellow light give you time to stop. And yet there's some dude in Podunk, Minnesota or wherever we send our money to going to look at my camera feed and say, well, he had plenty of time to stop. Well, you weren't there, bucko. How are you going to tell me to stop? And I just, it's so frustrating to me because there is no Mercy. Right? There's no level of forgiveness. If your back wheels are not over that line, you get a ticket. No questions asked, and you gotta pay it, or you can't get your car registered next time go go around unless you lie about it. Look, I, I I'm just I'm amazed at how the fact that now, even though nobody was present for it, no even though they didn't understand the traffic conditions, even though I could have been on my way to the hospital to take my wife because she's pregnant or she's bleeding out of her ear, and yet they're going to give me a ticket? It's so frustrating. You know what a lot of Christians are? Traffic light cameras. Waiting for people to make mistakes and to never give any mercy. They walk around with a chip on their shoulder, and as soon as somebody offends them, it's never... They will never pass over a transgression. They will never delay punishment. I mean, they're going to make it known to the right authorities that somebody screwed up, and they're going to have to pay for what they did. No, that's not forbearance. Forbearance is a delay of earned punishment. It's essentially saying, hey, I know you owe me some money. If, if you've fallen on some hard times, you know what, just, just take your time. Just, just get it to me when you can, and if you can't get it to me... Uh, We'll still be friends. And I'll just say this on the heels of that. Be careful about loaning money to your closest friends. The love of money is the root of all friend divorces. That's what the Bible says. Going on, and the Bible doesn't say that, just in case you were wondering. But going on, not only forbearing, secondly, and this is so important to the process, of maintaining relationships with these attributes in mind. Humility and meekness, and long-suffering. Now we've looked at forbearance, and now we move on to forgiving one another. Notice, if any man have a quarrel against any, oh, we ought to be forgiving people. If any man have a quarrel against any, is stated here to point out that forgiveness is to be extended to those people who have actually wronged us. You know, It's easy to forgive somebody that didn't do anything wrong. What's hard is forgiving somebody that did something wrong. And we have to be willing in those times to extend forgiveness. No doubt the most beautiful story of this in the Bible, other than that of Jesus Christ forgiving us, is when Joseph forgives his brothers for all that they did, and they come back, and they're standing there begging him for food and begging him for help. And he looks at him and finally reveals himself to them. Well, they obviously are very, very afraid of his reaction. He says, hey, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To, as it is this day, to save much people alive... Look, you may have acted in a poor manner, but what I'm going to do is extend forbearance and extend forgiveness to you. Not because you deserve it, but because I know the one who's forgiven me. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians walk around and they say things like, well, I don't have to forgive them because I don't need them. You know, what we think is, as long as the relationship is not super valuable or important, we don't have to forgive them. And we can just work with each other with a chasm in our relationship. Maybe it's a coworker that you've not gotten along with, or maybe something's happened between you, and you just say, ah, oh, we'll get over it eventually. But what happens is that, that, that uh, scar festers and gets infected. And we begin to struggle, and there was no forgiveness, there was no restoration of relationship, and we just say, ah, oh, we'll just move on. We'll just get over it, but, but I'm not forgiving them. But did you know that in your life, when this happens, you're not forgiving them for their sake, you're forgiving them for your sake. It's unhealthy to harbor anger and wrath and malice towards someone. So what you do is you forgive them for your sake, not only because you need it for your spiritual growth and development, but because you need it to still have God on your side. Say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? The Bible says it so many times. The Bible says in Mark chapter eleven, verse twenty-five. Mark these down if you would like. And when you stand praying, forgive if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Matthew chapter six, verse fourteen. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So you say, oh, I don't need them. No, but you probably need God. And God says, if you'll be mature enough to forgive other people, even though you may have a very valid reason not to, it only helps to strengthen your relationship with Him. We get so focused on horizontal dealings, do we not? We look around and act as if this is the only thing that we have to deal with, and then when we spend time in our devotion, that's our a vertical time. Right? This is our God time. We close our Bible, and we move on, and we act however we want to act, we behave however we want to behave, and we have emotions however we want to have them, not allowing God to mature us and develop us as Christians. What God says is, if you're going to be the Christian I need you to be, you have to forgive people. Today, is there someone in this auditorium, or in your family, or at your work, who you harbor ill will towards, and you just need to come to an altar and forgive them? And you just need to say to God, God, with everything that I am, I want to forgive them, so please help me get rid of these feelings of resentment. The good thing about emotions is God's still God. And I believe God, as He can turn the heart of a king, I believe He can turn the heart of a Christian. And I believe God can change even the way you feel. You know, if He can change my appetites after salvation, He can change my emotions during salvation. So we have to be forgiving. Finally, I want you to see this. And this is the thread that holds it all together. This is the absolute most important part of all of the Savior's sweet delights. Substitutes. It it is so very important. And the only reason that it's placed last on the list is to place as much emphasis on it as humanly possible. Look in verse number 14. And above all these things, Put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Look, if, if we're talking about garments, right? We're talking about taking off old clothes and putting on new clothes. The thing that holds it all together is love. You see, if you have love for one another, it will be much easier to be humble towards people. It will be much easier to extend grace and forgiveness to them. You know why? Because you love them. One of the things that I've noticed is it's easy in my life to not want to give these things to people that I don't necessarily find a tremendous affinity and affection for. I don't like this person, so what I do is it's much easier to point out their flaws. I say, well, they say this, they always do this and I don't necessarily love that person, but if we loved them, we would be much more willing to extend to them the grace that's been extended to us. Charity is the absolute most important part of this. Take your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Now many of us know there are three types of love in the Bible, and I probably don't even have to go over them for, most of you, but I will go over them just for the few that may not know. There is a phileo love, and that is a brotherly type of love. In fact, the city of Philadelphia gets its name from this word. Uh, what's the city of Philadelphia's motto? The city of brotherly love, right? And the reason is because is it's named Philadelphia from the Greek word phileo. It's, a, it's an affection, uh, uh, but more on a Uh, 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 brotherly type of uh, plane. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 says, He that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And that is a phileo love the Bible talks about. There's secondly an eros love. And that love is a much more sensual and physical driven love. In other words, it's the type of love that the book of Song of Solomon talks about. This love is not always bad, I might state that. This love was meant between a a, a husband and a wife. This is a good type of love. But what the devil has done is he's taken something that God gave us and distorted it and made it ugly and wicked. And he's now providing people a way to express their eros type of love in ways that God never meant it to be expressed. God is a God of love. The devil, there is nothing about the devil that is love. So devil di, the devil didn't create this type of love. No, God gave it to us and the devil perverted it as he does so many things in our life. So there's eros and uh, uh, phileo. And then finally, and the most important to us as Christians is agape. And we know this type of love because it's the type of love found in John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment. "...that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends." Now this type of love is an unconditional, selfless love. In fact, most times it's used in the Bible. It's used in the context of the Heavenly Father and the Son. Okay, So the love that they share with one another... And I want to ask you tonight, which type of love do you think the Bible is asking us to give here in Colossians chapter 3? Well, it's not phileo. That's brotherly love. And even though this is specifically talking on a horizontal plane, like my relationship with Kevin or my relationship with Brother Bowery or Brother Adam, uh, that's the type of plane we're on. But it's not asking for a brotherly love. It's not asking for an eros love because some of you aren't physically attractive at all. And that would be tough to muster up. But it is an agape love. The love that Christ displayed for us when he gave his life for us. Selfless and unconditional. Don't underestimate the depth of this word. You understand? It's not saying, oh, and above all this, you ought to love people. Well, I love everybody. I just don't love every aspect of everybody, right? I can get along with some people and I can put up with some people, but I love them all. No, 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 no. This is an unconditional and selfless type of love. And that's the type of charity that holds all of our reactions in every situation together. Right? Humility cannot be mustered up uh, in your mind. You can't be humble towards someone. You cannot display meekness towards somebody. You cannot be uh, the Christian you need to be unless it's motivated from a heart of love. And here's the the conflict in my mind, right? As I've studied this and as I've preached this, here's the conflict. If I'm going to do this, I want to do it all the time. I don't want to be the guy that occasionally displays meekness and then occasionally, depending on the person or the situation, then I lash out. No, if the Bible says it, I want to be it all the time. 24-7, 364, and the other day I'm in a coma. Okay, I want to be this all the time. So how do I do it? How do you do it? Have love. The Bible puts it like this. No, Jesus puts it like this. Uh, Love the Lord God with all your heart. That's the first and great commandment. And the second is, Love thy neighbor as thyself. So, uh, 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 what's the third? No, there's no need for a third. Well, what, what, what comes after? Jesus looks up, no, there is no after. If you love God with this type of love, and you love your fellow man with this type of love, then there's no need for any rules or regulations. The Bible puts it this way upon all uh, on upon this do all the law and the prophets hang in other words everything that moses wrote and everything that the old testament prophets wrote and everything that paul would write and john would write and matthew would write and any of the people in the bible would write all of it hangs upon this one principle the thread of it all the backbone of it all and what is it love 1 corinthians chapter 13 is a beautiful chapter of Scripture. I want you to notice that many times this is read at a wedding to display the type of love that a husband ought to have for his wife. And I believe if there's anybody that a husband ought to love in this world, it ought to be his wife, it ought to be his family. But this chapter, understand, is not written in the context of just a husband and wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, though I be the best preacher in the world and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. You know what he's saying there? If I don't have love behind my message, it just gets annoying. It's like a toddler in the background thinking they can play the drums. Just annoying. Then he goes on to say, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, I'm the most religious of all the religious people in the world. And though I could uh, remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Religion without love is no religion worth having. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, now this is amazing to me. And though I give my body to be burned, though I be the most gracious, though I be the most committed to charitable acts and charitable deeds, though I I really go out of my way to make everybody else comfortable, he says, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. In other words, There is no good feeling that you could get because you gave enough gifts. If you don't love the people you're giving gifts to, the charity is pointless. The love is pointless. The action of the gift is pointless. If you don't love people, it does you no good to give it. Notice verse number four. We get into somewhat of a description of what love is, real love, and what it does. Charity suffereth long. Does that sound similar to anything we've studied? It might be in a little different uh, uh, order, but suffering long and long-suffering, pretty similar, aren't they? And is kind. Now, hold on. Does anybody remember us talking about us being kind as Christians, right? The Bible is harmonious, right? It always agrees with itself. And when you read something in one passage, guess what? If you go to another passage regarding the same topic, it's not going to say anything different. It's only going to reinforce the principle, we ought to be long-suffering and we ought to be kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It almost seems like somebody that's full of pride, almost like the exact opposite of humility of mind. Doesn't it sound that way? Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. I'll be very honest with you. The whole reason we're preaching through this series is because I needed help in this area. And I thought that there might be a couple of Christians that were with me in this area. And so we started this. And, uh, and I was worried about how I would behave in certain situations that weren't always the most comfortable or the, the way that I thought they should go. And so does that not sound very similar to doth not behave itself unseemly? Because that's the reason I I started to study this passage. I wanted to always be able to behave myself and handle myself, even in controversial situations. Uh, Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. That almost sounds pretty similar to, to the provocation we've been speaking of. Thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity but in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Notice. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, notice this, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Look. The only thing that's going to keep Christians behaving the way that we ought to behave in situations we're not comfortable in, it's not being able to say, well, I need to be meek, I need to be meek. And I have to be honest, that's the way I approached it this week. Well, I was sitting in my mind thinking, well, that's what I studied, this is what I studied, this is what I thought about, this is what I thought about. Lord, please help me to be meek. No, 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 no. It's not motivated from a heart that wants to be meek. It's motivated from a heart that loves and you are meek because of the love that you have notice the difference i love how mothers love their kids regardless you ever seen a mother put uh, out there to basketball game my mom is such a refined lady she's able to hold herself back but you put her in a basketball arena mandy wolfenbarger on the floor now mandy Aminel on the floor You won't hear things that nobody's ever heard. They say talking like a sailor. Sailors don't even know what she was saying. I mean, she would never get dirty or anything, but i tell you what, them refs knew very well that their vision was not what they thought it was coming into the arena. They were were leaving the gym. Yeah, can I speak to my optometrist? Somebody in the stand said I needed some glasses. So, uh... (laughs) Look... You put her in that, and I'm not making fun of my mother. I love my mother. In fact, I loved her passion for it. You know why she was that way? It's because the kid that was in the game. She never pulled for the kid from Lipan. She never cheered them on. We get a bad call. You think, you know, they get a good call going their direction. You think my mom was like, come on, ref, call it both ways. Be fair. The kids are trying to learn. You think, that? Yeah, she wasn't saying stuff like that. She'd look at me and say, we got away with one there, son. Give me five. <laughs> I've even had the opportunity to know mothers that were, that were even proud of their children when they made terrible mistakes on a basketball floor. The kids that score in the wrong goal and the mom's like, that's my son. <laughs> I've known them. You know what that is? Unconditional love. And I don't care how many times that kid walks up to that mother. I, I'll tell you this, and this is an indictment upon me as a teenager. There were many times I told my mother, shut up. Now there were many times I got smacked for it. There was a time in my life I thought I knew more than my mother. And uh, we had some words from time to time, and I was in the wrong. Don't Please, teenagers, don't think this is justifiable because your youth director is a moron did this. But there were times I, I remember specifically telling my mother one time, I hate you. Listen, did that ever stop her love for me? You know what that is? Unconditional, selfless love. As I thought in my mind, the only way I could illustrate agape love, it was that. A parent's love for their child. And I think it's commendable and admirable if you as a parent have that love, but honestly, I think it's almost expected of you. But what God says is, when we have that love for Brother Curtis, when we have that love for Brother Jay and Brother Brian and Brother Jim and Brother Josh Chapel and Brother Brother Terry and Brother Adam and and Brother Marshall and and, uh, Brother Jay, (laughs) when we have that love, the garments of the new man are much easier to live in. Otherwise, it's just a covering that gets ripped off at night. Look, love is the resounding principle of this. You want to be able to behave yourself in situations. You want to be able to react when other people are hurting you and talking about you. The overwhelming principle is this. Love them with all of your heart, despite what they're doing to you.